Welcome to Granite State Matters, the busy person's way to catch up with what's happening in Concord. Because the extremists are taking over the state house, And what you don't know can hurt you. I'm Steve Marchand. And I'm Jean Deitch, sitting in for Terry Harkins. Jean, great to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about what New Hampshire has typically been and sort of what's changing now in terms of the common sense nature of New Hampshire politics for most of our lifetime. There's something about New Hampshire that has made it, for the most part, a purple state, sometimes a little more Democratic, sometimes a little more Republican. But something that I often talk about is how New Hampshire, usually the boundaries of public policy, bounce between about a three or a seven. If one is the most conservative and 10 would be the most progressive, we're kind of like a three to seven most of the time. And, and uh, that's worked pretty well over the course of the last generation or so of New Hampshire politics. But things are changing for a lot of reasons. And all of a sudden, we've got increasing number of folks that are saying that a three is just a little too liberal for New Hampshire. Yeah, we've talked in the past episodes about how uh, outside money is coming in and, and that money, the 0.1%, they want to get rid of regulations. They'd love to get rid of regulations and public schools that they have to pay for and public health, uh, um, Medicare and Social Security, all the things that uh, companies have to pay for. They would love to get rid of those. Uh, and New Hampshire seems to be a place they can do it. So they are really funding the libertarians who tend to be idealistic, wide-eyed folks who think that they can create a utopia without any laws and it will all happen uh, when we look around us and all the all the countries that have that kind of situation are third world nations, but uh, they want to give it a try. And so these libertarian leaders, uh, they're really pushing some incredibly radical uh, legislation. So this episode, what are we talking about, Steve? Well, it's the ways that something like this that don't have majority support in the state and a lot of times may not even have real majority support in the legislature, but somehow they're getting pretty far down the road and in some cases becoming law. So we're going to talk about the fraying of democracy in New Hampshire and about the way that many Republicans and libertarians are manipulating the process, the rules, the procedures to stifle the voice of those who disagree with this libertarian style movement that is going on within our midst and how they enable radicals that are interfering, literally in some cases, interfering with the democratic process. Okay, so what are our quiz questions today? We always start out with uh, three quiz questions, true or false? All right, so the first question, Gene. Since the former New Hampshire Speaker of the House passed away from COVID in December of 2020, citing an increased concern for safety, the GOP leadership responded to that uh, by allowing legislators to participate in sessions remotely. Okay, that's the first question, true or false? Seems pretty common sense. Uh, the second one, when armed anti-vax protesters stormed an executive council meeting and then threatened health and human services staff. The governor had the New Hampshire State Police eject those protesters from the building. Okay. Third true or false question is, in January, Governor Sununu signed a bill that would fine parents or local officials $10,000 if they tried to ban guns in public schools. Wow. 
We'll get to the answers to those questions by the end of this episode, but uh, that's something to chew on for a few minutes while we talk a little bit about how we got there. And we've got a great guest today as well who is going to be able to tell us in a first-person kind of way about this interruption of the process the uh, that is making uh, some of these extreme ideas have a much better chance at reality. David Muse, a state representative from Portsmouth, a friend of the podcast, great guy, he'll be on shortly to give us a first-person account of how some of this is happening. But first, we can just uh, look back, and I mean, we've talked in the past about how gerrymandering uh, this purple state into red state, you know, this is still not enough for them, even though they they have far more legislators than uh, relative to their share of the population. Now Republicans are using the COVID crisis to squelch the voices of, of the elected opposition even more. And that's even though David Hinch actually passed away from COVID a week after being elected. I remember that uh, at the end of 2020. This is not uh, serendipity. This is not coincidence. I mean, if you look at, and David will probably get into this a little bit when we talk to him. If you look at the nature of the legislature, uh, most of the members, the the average age of a New Hampshire legislator is uh, well into the 60s. We know, especially this is uh, pre-vaccine, especially, we know that the populations that tend to be at the greatest risk uh, if they contract COVID are older residents, older citizens. Um, We also know that being indoors in close proximity, uh, these are the very things that to the present day, the CDC and most other uh, health experts in the mainstream say, these are not great ideas. We should not be doing these things. Well, and of course, Democrats tend to be uh, the older uh, of the representatives. Uh, They tend to be uh, people who self-quarantine if they're ill, and they try to avoid unmasked people indoors. So at the January session, Democrats were down 22 members. Republicans were only down four uh, because they're happy to go without masks and uh, to suffer the consequences. And indeed, we've seen this in polling in New Hampshire and nationally, again, even to the present day, but especially when you look at the 2021, that first half of 2021 legislative uh, cycle season, uh, that's when the the two-year budget was determined, which in some ways makes it an even more impactful uh, legislative year than the second year tends to be because of the budget. Uh, Democrats, uh, for a bunch of reasons that really didn't have to be, Uh, This has become a partisan issue in terms of uh, trying to adhere to best practices uh, to avoid the spread or contraction of COVID. And again, think about this. It's easy to forget now. A lot of this was happening before the vaccine was even available for the members to take. So it wasn't even an issue of being pro-vax, anti-vax. There was no vax at that point. It would be a a no-brainer to most folks to to uh, do these best practices and then to retain them. Uh, one thing that I think uh, most legislators would acknowledge is that attendance and participation actually would go up. And this should not be a surprise when you allow remote opportunities uh, for uh, members of the legislature and members of the public to get involved. This is a pro-democracy um, sort of residual effect This does not limit participation. If anything, it would increase it. So this would seem to be a no-brainer. 
and yet it has been anything but that. That's only one of the ways that the radicals are tearing away at our democratic practices. I mean, you remember what happened at the executive council meeting last September, right? Wow. You know, in, in case people don't know what the executive council is, it's this group that has to approve uh, every expenditure of the government and every appointment uh, that the governor makes. Do you remember how much it was? Was it $31 million, something like that? It was somewhere in there. It was certainly north of $20 million, yeah. a significant amount of money at a critical time. As, and, and this was to help um, start giving vaccines to children. It was at the point where uh, most adults had the vaccine, uh, and the, there was federal funding available to expand that to children. So you want to tell them what happened at the executive council meeting, Steve? So they've got the, the council meeting going on with the Five members and the governor up front and a crowd of people for a variety of reasons uh, that are uh, interested in the topic, including a lot of uh, health and human services staff, which is a not insignificant part of the story. And then a number of protesters who were uh, not just armed with strong opinions. Uh, they were armed. Uh, they broke up the meeting. They were chanting. Uh, they became increasingly hostile and obviously disruptive to the meeting. They disrupted HHS staff who came to testify about this. And, and so the governor, he wasn't there. How about that? Because the protesters attended an earlier meeting beforehand, the governor had felt threatened and left before the meeting even started. And instead of insisting that state police expel the protesters because they were there to disrupt the normal day-to-day -day business of government. The chair of the executive council instead let them halt the meeting. So instead of expelling the protesters, the state police walked the threatened staff out of the building. What kind of message does that send? If you get nasty, if you get violent, if you threaten, you win. You stall it. Exactly. Armed protesters halted the government meeting. The governor didn't attend for his own safety, and state police had to leave government personnel, who were being threatened, by the way. Uh, at, at one point, they were going, we, you know, where you live. The state police had to leave them out of the building. It's, it's, uh, does it remind you of January 6th? I mean, this is the thing, is if, as an elected official, whether you're talking about the governor all the way up and down, um, if you do not push back in the strongest ways, uh, using, in this case, uh, public safety to ensure that the work of government can move forward, right, which sounds an awful lot like January 6th, if you have loud, angry, and, and armed, as it turns out, people that are going to do what they have to do to stall government from day-to-day -day operations, and then you don't do anything, to, to push back on that and say that is not acceptable in civil society. You not only allow it to stop business that day, in the long run, you degrade democracy, you degrade the ability for business to go on day to day, you reward the protesters. And that's kind of what happened on, on this day. Yeah, exactly. And as, since then, there have been similar protests inside school district meetings in Nashua uh, with armed people walking into the schools, which has to be allowed now. Uh, towns are no longer <laughs> allowed to make any rules that would uh, prevent anyone over 18 who has a 
uh, gun that they're licensed to, to have, they can come into a, a school board meeting of peaceful people and, and uh, stand around in a threatening manner and uh, interrupt the meeting in the same way that these people did. And it's been shown that, that there is no response. And I know that not only just as the lack of common sense COVID-related protections caused 22 Democrats to miss these key legislative sessions rather than a fraction of, you know, far single digits on the Republican side. Uh, this also has a long-term effect as these kind of stories pile up of influencing who is willing to serve in the future. Let's face it, in New Hampshire, as much as any state in the country, nobody's running for office for the legislature, for state senate, for the executive council. Nobody's doing this to get rich. This, these were volunteer positions in their creation that were meant for people to come in to serve for a period of time and then to go back into everyday life. And that is, at its best, what a citizen legislature could be. That's why we have 400 House members in theory. But when we make it so that you have to watch out for your health and, and now even your personal safety, if you serve— we take something that is already increasingly difficult for people to do because it does take a lot of time and you really don't get paid anything to do these jobs. And we now say, in addition to these barriers that are getting higher every two years, we're also going to say you got to worry about your health and your personal safety. This is influencing who can and will run for elected office in New Hampshire, and it makes it a more exclusive group of people that will which, again, degrades the quality of the democracy we have in New Hampshire. I expect David Muse is going to have a lot to say about all this, so I look forward to hearing from him. But before we leave you today, we asked you some quiz questions. Feel kind of compelled to answer them. Don't want to leave you hanging. Jane, I think we had three questions. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read the first one again for the folks listening, and, uh, and then we'll make sure they get the right answer. So the first question was, since the former New Hampshire Speaker of the House died of COVID in December of 2020, citing an increased concern for safety, the GOP's leadership have allowed legislators to participate in sessions remotely. Obviously false. Although remote hearings happened during lockdown, Republicans stopped allowing them as soon as the emergency ended, and they did not require participants to even mask despite the Speaker's death. Well, well, uh, and David laid out I think very well, just like the consequences of that. Uh, well, here's, okay, here's the second question. I guess if you've listened to the episode, the answers are going to be pretty evident by now, but all right, Gene, when armed anti-vax protesters stormed an executive council meeting and threatened health and human services staff, the governor had the New Hampshire state police eject them from the building. False again. Uh, right? In fact, the governor well, left what? the building before the meeting even started and because the armed protesters were inside. And rather than expel the protesters, the council chair had state police remove Health and Human Services staff from the building, letting the protesters successfully disrupt the processes of democracy. So 0 for 2 in terms of what I wish the answer was, but maybe the third one will be different. Maybe. Third question, Jane. In January, Governor Sununu signed a bill that would fine parents or local officials $10,000 if they tried to ban guns in public schools. No way. It's true. Towns can be sued by individuals if they have any law on the books restricting gun carrying anywhere, even in a police station, a kindergarten, 
Anyone over 18 with a legal weapon may carry it in a public school, even though the state recently spent $30 million to harden the schools against mass shooters. One thing about the legislative process, things don't have to make sense to become the law. (sighs) Yeah, and if you have people who seemingly have ideologies that personal freedom or, or their personal whims are more important than public safety, this is what you end up with. Well, when we come back, we're going to speak with David Muse, state representative from Portsmouth, who will uh, definitely put some some more examples into play here. Uh, stay tuned for that. You are listening to Granite State Matters. And we're back and happy to have one of my favorite members of the 400 member legislature. So that's not nothing. David Muse, state representative from Portsmouth, who uh, has seen it all in his time in the House. And unfortunately, David, uh, when we're talking about some of the fraying of democracy, there's a lot to see these days in the legislature. Uh, how are you doing and, and how is it going up there in the legislature so far this year? Well, it's, uh, it, it's definitely going. Um, I, I'm not sure how well it's going. Uh, uh, for the people in New Hampshire or a lot of my fellow legislators. As you know, we've had uh, six legislators uh, test positive since the last session. Those are just the ones that uh, have been disclosed. And meanwhile, some of our committees are meeting upwards of four times a week with very little uh, being done in terms of the way of uh, of taking health precautions. Um, a lot of the members are not wearing masks. A lot of the members of the public who show up are also not wearing masks. I mean, just to give our listeners a little more context, when you say that you in the legislature are meeting right now and there's, you know, mask optional meetings and so forth, uh, this is pretty intensive, indoor, crowded rooms, frequent meeting we're talking about, right? I mean, a, a lot these days. Yeah, it, it definitely is a lot. We're, we're talking about uh, full-day meetings. Uh, my committee uh, met twice uh, last week, uh, and we went from 9 o'clock in the morning until uh, one of the days we were there until well after five, uh, some of the other committees like Health and Human Services and Elderly Affairs, uh, they met four times last week uh, for full day meetings, and I believe they're meeting twice uh, this week. So it, it is very, very intense. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't feel comfortable with that situation. So uh, there are people, I'm sure, who would like to come in and testify on some of the bills that we're hearing, but who just don't feel comfortable doing that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, David, last year, 2021, the legislature used technology, Zoom and similar types of technology uh, extensively, and they're not doing that this year. Is that correct? Yes. And one of the differences is the the expiration of the governor's emergency order. So one of the reasons we were able to actually meet by Zoom and one of the reasons why uh, a lot of uh, uh, town boards uh, and city boards were actually able to meet remotely last year was because we uh, uh, temporarily modified our, our by executive order our uh, our state's right to know law to allow us to do that. When those emergency orders expired, uh, so did our capability to do that, and so far our ability to uh, to essentially put those into regular law so we can continue to do that um, has been blocked uh, by the Republicans in Concord. The and even within that where. Y'all are meeting in person and exposing each other to, with a lot of risk here. There are 
certain members of the legislature who are particularly immunocompromised right now. And and I recall um, earlier in January uh, that uh, one member in particular uh, was really rudely cut off, got a lot of attention in New Hampshire uh, for this episode, and in some ways was kind of a microcosm of uh, almost the inhumanity uh, or the lack of uh, thoughtfulness to each other in the legislature uh, that's going on these days. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Representative Kathy Rogers. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that situation. And Kathy Rogers is a, a longtime legislator, and uh, uh, and unfortunately, uh, she has uh, she has cancer. She's uh, undergoing treatments, and her uh, immune system is is definitely compromised. Um, she actually showed up and attended uh, both days of the last session. Um, uh, was there for the full day. And then at the end, she asked to do a unanimous consent speech. And essentially, it was a speech on bridging our differences after the January 6th insurrection. And as soon as she men mentioned January 6th, 2021, uh, someone shouted for her to stop. And uh, there was a vote taken and unanimous consent was withdrawn. So she basically mm -hmm. got a sentence and a half uh, through her speech and uh, and was stopped. And a lot of us were were very upset with that. And I recall that did get an awful lot of attention at the time. Yeah, just 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 prior to that, uh, Al Baldessero got up and uh, and also did a unanimous uh, consent speech. And there was a Democrat uh, who basically uh, asked to stop. And the way that that works is any legislator can withdraw unanimous consent. So unanimous consent to do a speech at the end of the session has to be uh, unanimous. Uh, when that happens, we take a vote. Um, and what happened with El Baldessero's speech was uh, the body allowed him to continue. And that same um, courtesy was not extended to Catherine Rogers. When I mentioned the inhumanity, the, thought, the, the lack of thoughtfulness of courtesy going on, especially at this time, it's, it's more than that, though. It seems like, and you alluded to this a minute ago, David, there's an actual impact on the process itself. Uh, that is, legislators that feel comfortable being there feel safe versus those that, that do not, as well as uh, members of the public who might want to testify. Uh, but unlike 2021, where they might be able to testify uh, via remote, uh, that's an option not readily available this year. That's got to have a real impact when you're sitting up there on the dais, a real impact on the process itself. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, and, I, and I've seen that in some of my own bills, too. I've been told by people who normally would be there to testify uh, in favor and support of those bills that they were going to file written testimony instead uh, or just indicate their support online uh, because they didn't feel they don't feel that it's safe. Um, going into the state house or going into the the, uh, the legislative office building, I, I do want to say that there have been some steps that have been taken um, to to help. Uh, so, for example, um, masks are available in in multiple places before you go into committee rooms. Um, hand sanitizer uh, is available. But one of the things to to keep in mind is that most of these things are are optional. Um, so when you go into a committee hearing, um, one of the things you'll typically find is um, you typically more than half of the legislators who are sitting there are maskless. Um, and also a considerable num number of people who are uh, attending the hearing itself uh, will also be maskless. And 
one of the things that that does is if you do have somebody who's maybe immune compromised at home uh, or somebody who's in a delicate health condition, or maybe you are yourself, um, it's a barrier. And so we're, we're seeing that now in our public hearings, and we've been seeing it with uh, this entire legislative session actually going all the way back to January of last year, where um, uh, es essentially the lack of ability uh, for people to be able to participate in the process and to be able to vote in the process remotely is... Um, you know, not only stripping legislators in some cases of their ability to represent their constituents and those constituents of their right to be heard, but it's also disenfranchising members of the public uh, who would like to be there to express their opinion on these issues, but who can't be. When you look ahead, the remainder of this legislative session, we're obviously going into an important midterm election year. There's not just uh, the disempowerment at key moments of members of the public to be involved in the process, at least to feel like they could do it safely, but also uh, proposed legislation, ideas that might have the, in the same vein, the impact of trying to make it more difficult to participate as a voter, to participate in a non, in a, in a neutral environment when you actually go to vote, these sort of things. How are you, how is that looking this year uh, in terms of legislation and things that might actually become the law this year? It's not looking great. I mean, there are uh, there are bills passing, and there are still many bills to be considered that would make it uh, more difficult to vote. Um, just today, uh, I, I believe there was a he another hearing in the Senate uh, on on redistricting, and our redistricting maps are a, are a disaster. Um, they've been flagged by virtually every national uh, fair voting group <laughs> around mm -hmm. uh, because they're so heavily gerrymandered. I had a bill just last week uh, that would have um, prohibited uh, firearms from being brought within 100 feet of, of, a, of a polling place um, that received an inexpedient to legislate recommendation. And, and I, I can't think of a lot of people I know who think uh, guns and voting uh, make a good mix. Um, but, <laughs> no, um, no, but I was out, I was outvoted on that one. <laughs> well, that, and, and there was another bill that, uh, may not be as dramatic as some that have been proposed, but, um, I think it was HB 97 it, that dealt with electioneering, the ability for anybody to wear campaign paraphernalia, uh, into the, the polling place, correct? Yes. And, you know, and. We've had a longstanding prohibition uh, in, in New Hampshire uh, when it comes to electioneering inside polling places. Uh, it's, it's just not a good idea. Polling places, um, especially in this environment, uh, can be uh, incendiary anyway. One of the things that we've also done in this session is we've passed legislation um, that basically makes it easier for groups of people to gather inside the polling place um, to do poll watching and things of that nature. Um, so what we're doing is we're not only making things more difficult for voters, we're making things more difficult for, for election workers, and we're actually adding points of friction um, mm. in areas that are very close to the voting process itself. And, um, and the other thing that we've done uh, simultaneous to this is that uh, some of the uh, extension of, uh, of absentee voting uh, that we were able to take advantage of during COVID, again, we were able to do that because of emergency orders. Those emergency orders expired in 
and so did our ability to do that unless we extend it by law. So one of the other things that's happened in this in this session is that attempts to uh, uh, attempts to uh, make absentee voting easier um, have also generally failed. Unfortunately, we're looking at elections in the fall that are going to make um, things harder uh, on on just about everybody except uh, the folks who are in the majority now. Well, one question we like to ask virtually all our guests at some point, and maybe isn't a bad way to close up today, is these are real things that are happening. Some get a fair amount of attention. Others seem to slide through with only the most intensely, you know, following people, a handful that will, will notice things happening. What needs to happen, you know, between now and Election Day, certainly 2022. But in the bigger picture, what needs to happen in order to get the level of awareness up where these ideas, many of which you've described, things that uh, are not in the, the majority of popular opinion in the state, and yet they seem to be making their way through the process successfully, uh, that disconnect is very alarming. What has to happen in order to take that disconnect and get popular opinion and common sense on the same page once again? Well, I, I think part of it just starts uh, by legislators looking in the mirror. I, I think one of the obligations that we have in a situation where we literally have only a handful of reporters who cover state government is that when those reporters aren't covering issues like this that are important to people and they can affect their ability to vote, it's up to us to be out there on social media, um, uh, writing about these things, talking about these things, having conversations with our constituents about them, and generally trying to trying to raise awareness. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of getting out there and tweeting whatever happens uh, to be posted on WMUR or the union leader that day. I mean, part of it, I think what 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 folks like myself need to do is we need to help set an agenda in this state. Um, and we don't set that agenda by sitting on our hands and being quiet and feeling mad and feeling sorry for ourselves. Um, there's a lot of value in just getting basic information out there to people about what's going on and how they can participate in the process. And I, I think uh, in combination with some very good reporting, I think, by some of the folks who, who actually are covering state government, um, I, I think that more and more people will actually start to pay attention to the stories that are written and, and hopefully uh, will start to form different opinions uh, that maybe put them in a slightly different place when they, uh, when they go to vote this fall. Well, it's certainly takes uh, not just a lot of people moving in the same direction. It takes leadership and it takes quality people that are currently involved in the legislative process to do that. It's an honor to call you a friend and to have known you for that length of time. And we're really happy that you're one of the people that's currently involved in the process and doing everything you can to, uh, to get New Hampshire on the right track and then keep us there. Uh, and we really appreciate your time today as part of this podcast. Thank you, Stephen. One last thing is anybody out there who's thinking about running for office, this is the time to really start thinking about it. And we mm. really do need good quality people running for the legislature. There are 400 of us. We're mostly anonymous, um, but we work very, very hard for the people of this state. And we'd love to have uh, more folks join us um, who can do something about these issues. Extremely important words, because uh, if you don't run, listener, somebody else will, and you may or may not be pleased with who steps into the breach 
if uh, if there are not good people willing to jump in and do it themselves. So, uh, David Muse, uh, state representative from Portsmouth, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. This has been Granite State Matters discussion of the fraying of democracy in New Hampshire. Our next episode will be New Hampshire for the people or for profit, a further look into the ideas and actualities that govern our state. You can follow our biweekly podcast at your favorite podcast provider and share it with friends and neighbors because extremists are taking over the statehouse. And what you don't know can hurt you.